Please turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 6. And I'll just read one verse from Romans 6 as we begin. This will be the verse that we focus on this evening. It's verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we come to his word this evening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we consider this scripture before us tonight, grant us your Holy Spirit, me, to preach clearly, faithfully, and help us all to hear with ears for eternity. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. It dawned on me the last couple of days why I'm taking so long in Romans chapter 6, there are some errors in Reformed theology nowadays regarding justification. Some of you have heard of the new perspective. Some of you have heard of what's called federal vision. I'm not going to go into it. But there are some errors, even in Reformed theology, regarding justification. But on the topic of sanctification, and that really is the basic topic of Romans chapter 6, I think there are a multitude of errors, even in the Reformed part of Christianity. And these errors in the area of sanctification really trouble me. They especially trouble me as a pastor. And whenever I think of them, or almost whenever I think of them, I think, it's this text that we're focusing on today that comes to my mind, really as an epitomizing text of some of those errors when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification. And so tonight, finally, I'm preaching that text. And it struck me that it's not just this one verse, but this whole topic we've been focusing on in the first part of Romans 6, that has me concerned that I preach these truths and that we understand them, and especially so that when we come to verse 14, we have a right understanding of it, that we are not ourselves led astray by what this text says, or what we think it says, or what Christians around us think it says, and that we're able then to maybe refute some of those things that people say about this text. So having said that, even though it's just one verse, it will take me more than one message just for this one verse. And regardless of how many it takes, now that I've had this epiphany, I will make no apologies. My friend and teacher, Sam Waldron, said many years ago, I think it was when I was studying in the academy, he said regarding Matthew 7, 1, Judge not 
that you be not judged, that it is the most misinterpreted text in the Bible. Most people take that to mean never say anything negative about anything anyone does. In fact, if you do that, one saying is very popular nowadays. Don't judge me because of the misinterpretation of that text. And that misinterpretation is patently unbiblical. So that is probably the most misinterpreted text in the Bible. I will not disagree with my teacher, but I will say this. A second is like unto it. And it's our text tonight. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And as you know, many professing Christians interpret that to mean, I'm a Christian, I'm under grace, the law of God has nothing to do with me. Well, let's begin with a review, not of the whole chapter we've seen so far, but just verses 8 to 14. I'll do it quickly. I gave it the heading, our confidence regarding life in Christ. I said verse 8 is our confidence. What are we confident about? That if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. It will make a difference in our lives. The second thing is the basis of our confidence. Verses 9 and 10, because we know that Christ has been raised from the dead, he therefore dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. That's true about Christ. That's the basis of our confidence. Then what's its practical application in our lives? Well, we have that in verse 8, the confidence, and then verse 11 as well. The first thing is we should be confident. Uh, we have 8, and then verse 11, then 12, then 13. The first thing is verse 8, practical application. We should be confident. The second thing is verse 11. We must reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I'm a Christian, if I've been converted, I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to God. That's a practical application. We should assume that that is true and live in the light of that truth. And then the next thing in verse 12, a practical application is this, that we should not let sin reign in our mortal body, that we should obey it in its lusts. And then the fourth practical application we saw in verse 13, last couple of messages, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. There's a sense in which you could sum up what we've seen in this first part of Romans 6, beginning with verse 1, really. In the one verse in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, where it says about Jesus Christ that he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. There's the work of Christ for us, so that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. That's a nice way to summarize what these first 13 verses say. 
And that is what Paul is telling us in this passage. So keep all of that in your mind as we come to verse 14, because it'll help us to understand verse 14 in a proper way. Tonight we come to the conclusion. So my outline would go like this. Verses 8 to 14 is our confidence regarding life in Christ. Number one, our confidence, verse 8. Number two, the basis of our confidence, 9 and 10. Number three, it's practical application in our lives, verses 11 to 13. And now the conclusion of this section, our confidence regarding life in Christ. The conclusion is this, the absolute certainty of the reign of grace in the life of the Christian. Let's read verse 14 again. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Notice how it, it's connected to the main heading. Our confidence regarding life in Christ the absolute certainty of the reign of grace in the life of the Christian. Let's start out by looking at the assertion that we find in verse 14. And one thing I will apologize for, uh, much of this message is like a theological lecture. Um, in other words, you're going to have to think tonight, but I know that you're good thinkers. I know you love the word of God. And I think there are a lot of, there's a lot of gold in this passage for our souls. The assertion is in the first part of verse 14. Paul makes an assertion as he comes to his conclusion. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You're a Christian? Then this is true of you, Paul says. The bottom line about our confidence, sin will not have dominion over you. It did once when you were not a Christian. It tries every day to regain dominion. And Paul says, if you are a Christian, it absolutely will not happen. Period. That's his assertion. And let's just notice a few things about it. The first thing, it, notice, is it, it's stated negatively. His assertion is stated negatively. In terms, it's stated in terms of the reign or relationship of sin to the Christian, the reign of sin in your life. It's a negative statement. Sin shall not have dominion over you. The second thing to notice is this, that this statement is designed for encouragement. When it states that sin will not have dominion over you, it's, it's not just a fact to be noted. Yeah, okay. No, it's for your encouragement as a Christian. As a Christian... You may have some fear that sin might regain its dominion over you in your life. Maybe it doesn't happen with every Christian that you get in a place of fear and trembling about that. But sometimes when you go through difficult times in your life, you feel like you're in the desert for 40 days with Satan there tempting you. And you feel like maybe I'm going to fall. This is for your encouragement. If you're a Christian, sin will not have dominion over you. It will not regain its dominion. And, and your fear might be along these lines. You, you think of what we see in the practical application. 
We have to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. And we need to live that way. And we need to live in light of that. And then verse 12, the practical application is, if we're Christians, we must not let sin reign in our mortal body that we should obey it in its lusts. And that seems like a tall order for us, especially at times of trial in our lives, times of temptation in our lives. It seems like it's difficult to comply with that. And likewise, verse 13, do not present your members as instruments of righteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God, your whole being to God as alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And you read that maybe in your devotions, or you hear it in a sermon, and you say to yourself, just within the last 30 minutes, I've presented some member of my mind to sin. And you say, this is a daunting task. I don't think I can do it. It leads to the question, how can I do those things? And Paul's answer is this. For sin shall not have dominion over you. It won't. It just absolutely will not. That's what Paul says, and that's what we should believe as Christians. So the first observation, this point is stated negatively. Secondly, it's a designed for our encouragement. Third, we have to think through the meaning of this statement here. Not just the first part of the verse, the assertion, sin shall not have dominion over you, but also the last part, for you are not under law, but under grace. And the way we can think through it and have a right understanding of it is to understand it, especially in light of its context. Everything leading up to it, starting with verse 1. Verse 14a, sin shall not have dominion over you. And the last part of the verse, verse 14b, for you are not under law but under grace, need to be interpreted as part of this context of Romans 6, 1 through 14. We're going to look at the meaning of it from a positive standpoint today. I will mention the negatives but then we'll look at it from a negative standpoint next time. In other words, focusing on the place of the law of God in the Christian life. You are not under law. All right? So here's the conclusion of the first 14 verses, and especially verses 8 to 14, about our confidence. The conclusion is the absolute certainty of the reign of grace in the life of of the Christian. The assertion is in verse 14a, sin shall not have dominion over you. But now we look at the reason for that. That's verse 14b. Why will sin not have dominion over you? For you are not under law, but under grace. Now here's a couple of negatives, or a few negatives that we look at here, and about what it, Paul is not saying, and I'm especially focusing on the first part of the last part of the verse. Those words in the middle, you are not under law. And I want to start out with what Paul is not saying there. He is not saying that you don't need to earn your salvation. Okay? You are not under law. He's not saying that means you don't need to earn your salvation. Now that's true, you don't need to earn your salvation. 
you can't earn your salvation. And it's also true that you are not under law could mean exactly that. We're just asking, what does it mean here? And that's not what Paul is saying. That is Paul's point in much of the book of Romans, isn't it? You are not under law means you can't earn your salvation in much of the book of Romans. Let's just go back for a moment to chapter 3 and verse 20, where Paul was just about ready to launch in to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He started that in verse 21. But his last statement leading up to that was a statement about whether we could be justified through obedience to the law. And here's what he said. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So there's a statement. No flesh will be justified in God's sight by keeping the law. Now that is a given in the New Testament, especially in the book of Romans. That's one of Paul's main points. And he could use the language, you are not under law, to mean that, that you can't be justified by your own works or by obeying the law. But that's not his point when we come to chapter 6. But no, let's notice for good measure verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. He says, now I'm going to tell you that, I'm going to tell you the way that you can have the very righteousness of God credited to your account and be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But before he launches into that explanation, he reminds us once again that it doesn't come through obedience to the law. The righteousness of God apart from the law is what I'm telling you about. Not by law keeping. So Paul says that in Romans. Jump over to chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, just for good measure here, because it's really his theme throughout the book of Romans. We're saved by grace. Or a, a similar uh, point is made when he says, we're saved through faith, not by works. But chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, he says, speaking of the Jews, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The point is, Jesus Christ, by his appearance and by his work on the cross, brings an end to all discussion and all thought even that we could ever be justified by keeping the law. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's a point Paul makes in Romans. That is not his point here in Romans 6, when he says you are not under the law. A second thing Paul is not saying is this. He's not saying that you, when he says you are not under the law, he's not saying you are not under the rule of the old covenant. If you're a Gentile, you're obviously not under the rule of the old covenant. You never were. And if you're a Christian, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're not under the rule of of the old covenant that's true also and the words you are not under the law could mean that 
But they don't mean that. It wouldn't make any sense in Romans 6. So they don't mean that here. That is Paul's point in Romans chapter 2. When he's speaking about Gentiles. If you look back to Romans 2 for a moment. There he says in Romans 2.12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. He's talking about two categories of people there. Gentiles and Jews. The Gentiles are people who sinned without the law. They never had the law of Moses. They never read Exodus 20 to know what God's commandments are, what pleases him, what he condemns. They didn't know that. They're people without law. But it says they're going to have the same end, if they're not believers, as those who have sinned in the law. They'll be judged by the law. That's Jews. They're in the law. They have the Old Testament. They know what God's will is. That's what Paul is saying there. Some people are under the law, Jews. Some people are not, Gentiles. But that's not what Paul is talking about in Romans 6. There he's talking about the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. In Romans 6, the distinction is between believers and unbelievers. All unbelievers, whether Jew or Gentile, are under the law, in the sense Paul is talking about in Romans 6. All believers, whether Jew or Gentile, are not under the law. What are they under? Yes. Good. So that's the second thing. He's not saying you're not under the rule of the Old Covenant. And then there's a third thing that Paul is definitely not saying. He is not saying that you need not obey God's law. He is not saying that here in Romans 6. That is a common misunderstanding of this verse. It's a common, I'll even call it, with quotes around it, Christian misinterpretation of this text. Why do people think that way? I don't think they're necessarily being malicious or pernicious in, in interpreting the text that way. They rightly understand that as Christians, we do not have to submit to all of the Old Covenant laws. Right? That's what I believe. We don't have to submit to all of the Mosaic laws. We don't have to submit to the law for circumcision, eating certain foods, making animal sacrifices. We could go on and on till the end of the night. Furthermore, they rightly understand as Christians that we cannot save ourselves by our own obedience to God's law. That would be called works righteousness. The, the entire Bible, especially the New Testament, rejects that out of hand. We all know that. So some Christians, they know those things, but then they go on to draw a very faulty conclusion. And that conclusion is this, that the law of God, in any sense, has nothing to do with me 
as a Christian. And that is not what the Bible says anywhere. That is not what the Bible says here in Romans 6. God willing, next time we're going to focus on that error uh, for the whole message. But for now then, we're going to move on. We're noticing the reason that Paul gives that we can be absolutely certain that, the, that grace will reign in the life of every true Christian. The first thing was, the, the first reason was, we just noticed what Paul is not saying. Now here's what Paul is saying. What is Paul saying here when he says, you are not under law, but under grace? Let me first give you his basic point. He's saying this. And remember, think of the context. As a Christian, you have been permanently removed from the realm of sin, condemnation. Can anyone finish that? Somebody did. Death. They whispered it. You have been permanently removed as a Christian from the realm of sin, condemnation, and death. And you have been brought into the realm of righteousness, justification, and life. That's what he's saying here. In chapter 5, we noted these two systems, or John Murray calls them complexes. I'm not going to take the time to retrace it out now. But the, the point is this. Adam introduced into this world things that were not in the world at the beginning. And we could summarize them in these words. He introduced sin, condemnation, and death. He introduced that to all his posterity, everyone who would ever be born from him and his wife Eve, everyone that would ever come out of his loins, if you will. And those things, ever since Adam's sin, mark the life of all unbelievers. They mark the life of this sinful world. Christ, on the other hand, Romans 5, introduced righteousness justification, and life. And he introduced it not just to the world in general, but to all his posterity, everyone who would believe in him and be saved by his work. And so those things, righteousness, justification, and life, mark the life and they mark the world of believers. If you were here yesterday at the memorial service, the text was 2 Corinthians 5, 17, when someone is saved, what happens? Old things have passed away. All things become new. It's similar to the point here that we see in Romans 5 and now going on into Romans 6. When Christ came into this world and did his work, especially on the cross, he ended or he broke that complex of sin, condemnation, and death. And he inaugurated that complex of righteousness, justification, and life. Now, those two realms still exist in this world. They exist side by side at the same time. It's not as though the, just when Jesus came and brought in the new covenant, the old covenant passed away, didn't it? But when he came and brought in righteousness and justification in life, that didn't mark the disappearance of this complex of sin, condemnation, and death. It's still going on. Open your eyes. It's all around you. It's all through the world, and it's in every unbeliever. That's where they live, if you will. That's the air they breathe. 
The two realms exist side by side and at the same time in this world. People in one home could be in one realm and their neighbors, it's true in my neighborhood, in the other realm. Two people in the same house, a husband and wife, for instance, could be in opposite realms, in the same house and in the same marriage, if one is a believer and the other is not. When someone is converted to Christ, the scripture is telling us here in Romans 5 and Romans 6, he leaves the one realm and he enters the other. Now, I've been saying this for weeks, but I've I, I just given you a review here. But this, in light of the context, brethren, is what Paul is saying here. As believers, we are in a new world. We are in a new universe. As one commentator that I quoted earlier on says, we are in a new eon. Why? Because we're in Christ. That's Paul's point in Romans 6. If you're in Christ, everything is different now. And everything is different in the battle against sin. You're in the battle against sin now. You're not just going along with sin like Pastor Hoffmeyer said this morning, that sinners do, and that he did before he was converted to Christ. We're in Christ. Everything is different and so one of the conclusions is that should be very encouraging to all of us is because you're in that new world, in a sense, you sh sin shall not have dominion over you. It will never regain mastery over you if you are a genuine child of God. Adam isn't our head anymore. The devil isn't our father anymore, as we've been hearing in the sermons from Genesis. Sin, Romans 6, is no longer our master and never will be. That's Paul's basic point. That's a basic thing he's saying here. Now we have to ask the question, well then, how do these words law and grace, you're not under law but under grace, how do they relate to all of this? As I was thinking on the way to church tonight, I thought, and this will have some meaning to the um, men that are in TMA 2.0. I thought my sermon is really light on um, arresting, illuminating devices or illustrations. So I thought one up. Let's, let's imagine that um, you're a little boy, or even a medium-sized boy, and there's a junkyard at the end of your street. A lot of old cars are in it, a lot of broken vehicles with a lot of um, sharp metal edges, and some of them are getting rusty. And there are junkyard dogs in the junkyard, that means they're hungry, and that means they're mean, and the reason they're there is because they don't want people going and stealing auto parts when it's nighttime and things like that. In other words, that's a dangerous place to be. It's a place where you could get some disease from getting cut by the rusted, rusted parts, you could... 
um, get hurt by the dogs, and you, you could well end up dying if you go into the junkyard. At the other end of the block, there's a house of a friend of yours, and it has a nice big backyard, and there's a swimming pool in it, and sometimes they invite you to come swim on hot summer days. Now, if you had to pick one word from the Bible that you would put as a sign over the junkyard and one word you would put as a sign over the yard with the pool, you might pick the word law for the junkyard. Because you think of that place as associated with things like sin, condemnation, and death. You might think of the picture that the writer to Hebrews paints in Hebrews chapter 12 with that mountain called Mount Sinai in the Old Testament that had a cloud around it and lightning was coming out of the cloud and there was a voice coming, thundering, saying, don't come near this mountain. If anybody comes near the mountain, he's going to die. That was, we'd put the law over that picture, wouldn't we? But on the other side, he said, you've come to Mount Zion, this wonderful place where there's forgiveness of sins. There's the saints of all the ages. There's the angels in heaven singing the glories of God. You might put the word grace over that picture. And you might put the word grace over the swimming pool yard. And so you see what I'm saying. So as we think of how law and grace relate to all of this, Let's think for a moment of the scriptural uses of the words law and grace to refer to different schemes or different systems of things. For in other words, how about the way of salvation? How might we look at the way of salvation viewed from a Christian's perspective? If you just had to pick one word to explain how Christians are saved, what word would you pick? I think you'd pick the word grace, wouldn't you? And if you had to pick one word to talk about the way you're not saved, you might pick the word law. We're not saved by law or by the works of the law. Think of the whole book of Romans. Think of the book of Galatians. Think of Ephesians chapter 2. Or if you had to think of the old covenant as opposed to the new covenant. If you had to think of Moses as opposed to Christ, what words might you use to talk about everything Moses represents and everything Christ represents? Look at, let's look at John 1.17 for a minute. John 1.17. It says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, the old covenant, that's Moses. If you had to pick one word that would represent the old covenant as opposed to the new, John uses the word law. And he uses two words for the new covenant and Christ, but he says grace and truth. That's how these words are used in many places in the Bible as representative words. Old covenant, new covenant, Moses, Christ. In Romans 6 verse 14, I think these words are referring to the differing realms 
or dominions in which saints and sinners live. That's the point Paul is making. He's not saying a word about how you know what to do in your life and how you know how to live. When Paul says you are not under law here, he means you are no longer living under the regime that the unbeliever is living under. That's what he's saying. And let me demonstrate that with two equations. First of all, equation number one. Sin plus condemnation plus death equals being under the law. That's what Paul is saying here. We can readily see how law fits right in with sin, condemnation, and death. Just look back at Romans 5 for a moment. Romans 5 verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. The law is all about sin. Certainly it's about pointing sin out. It's certainly about condemning sin, sin, condemnation. It's also about increasing sin. We focused on that, one of the sermons back there in Romans 5. The law entered that the offense might abound. The law goes along with sin and condemnation. It's demonstrated also in Romans 7, 7 to 9. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. The law is not sin. But then he says this, on the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. The law points sin out. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. And then he says this, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. From apart, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Think about those things. Sin and condemnation. The law is all about those things. It increases condemnation. It multiplies sins when it comes to an individual or even to a nation like Israel. And then one other text, especially related to death, just turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, a well-known passage. Paul is speaking about death, and he says this, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Yeah, the law condemns sin. But you know what else it does? It strengthens sin, like we just saw there in Paul's life. That's the idea here. That's the first equation. Sin, condemnation, and death equals being under the law. Equation number two, then, is obvious. Righteousness plus justification plus life equals being under grace. You are not under law. You are under grace. And we can easily see how grace fits in with righteousness, justification, and life. As a Christian, you are in that new regime, if you will, not the old one. And it's called the regime, if you have boil it down to one word, the regime of grace. Why call it grace? Well, you call it grace because righteousness, justification, and life, each one of those things comes to you completely free of charge. The righteousness 
comes from another. It's not your own righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness of Christ. The justification comes without cost. We call it free justification. It can't be earned by you or by me or anyone, only by Christ. It's free. It's paid for by God, who gave his son. It's paid for by Christ, who gave his life. But it's not paid for by you or by me. It's free. It's grace. The life that comes is a gift. It's stated at the end of this chapter, isn't it? For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how it works. And here's the point, brethren, as we come to Romans 6, verse 14. After Paul says, Reckon yourself to be dead to sin. Verse 11. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Verse 12. Don't present your members as instruments of righteousness, but present yourself to God and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. After he says those things, he then says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What's his point? In this new realm in which you live as a Christian, you can do God's will. You can obey his commandments. You're different now. Things are different now. There's a great contrast in this realm to the other realm. Look at Romans 8 with me for a moment. Romans 8, verses 7 to 9. Well, I'll back up to verse 6. Paul says, to be carnally minded, that, that's, that's to be a non-Christian. To be carnally minded is death. That's that old realm. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, an unbelieving mind, is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. An unbeliever cannot obey God's law. You might say, well, he, somebody cannot kill. But you know what? If he doesn't kill somebody, he never does it for the right motive. He doesn't do it for the glory of God. He doesn't do it out of love to God. Verse 8, so then those who are in the flesh, unbelievers cannot please God. But, verse 9, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not... His. That's one way to state the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. The believers in the flesh, this, sorry, the unbelievers in the flesh, the believers in the spirit. The unbeliever is under law, the believer is under grace. The believer can do the will of God, he can be subject to the law of God. He can keep Christ's words and commandments. He can. Because in this realm, God makes it possible. Christ makes it possible. He does it by his cross and by his resurrection. The Holy Spirit of God makes it possible. And isn't that exactly what we've been seeing in the first half of Romans 6? You can walk in newness of life because you are in Christ. 
You can walk in newness of life because you died to sin. You can walk in newness of life because the dominion of sin is broken. So you see the point I made at the beginning. Romans 6.14 is not an encouragement to you that you don't need to obey God's law the way many people take it to be. That's not what it's about. It's an encouragement to you that you can keep God's law and you will keep God's law as a Christian. You can walk in newness of life. You can say no to sin coming back and getting the dominion over you. You can present your members to Jesus Christ, difficult as it may be because of your remaining sin and because of the, the world and the devil added to that. All right, so I had it in my notes to apply this to four categories of people, and I will just speak to the first one tonight and we'll be done. And it's this, to the unbeliever. There are many encouraging things I have to say to believers, but it's going to have to wait, because I don't want to skimp on it. But to the unbeliever, here's what it says, what this text says. It's not addressing you when it says you are not under law, but under grace. As an unbeliever, by definition, you are under law. So this is what it says to you. You, if you're an unbeliever sitting here tonight, you are still in the realm of sin, condemnation, and death. That's where you are. Those are just facts. Or that is a fact. And here are some more facts that fit in with that. They, these facts tell you who the Bible says you are. It tells you what you are apart from Jesus Christ. First of all, it says you're a sinner. And I won't take the time to go read it, but that whole section in Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 9 and going to verse 18, where it says there's no one righteous no, not one, none who understands, none who seeks after God. It's, those are all talking about people as we come into this world. You came into this world that way, and if you're not a believer in Christ, you're still that way. That's what the Bible says to you. If you're an unbeliever, you're a sinner. It also says you're under the wrath of God. It says that in many places in the Bible. One of the places it says it is right at the beginnings of Romans. Romans 1 verse 18. That because of sin, because of people's unrighteous conduct and ungodliness, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against them. You could picture it this way. It's like as an unbeliever, you walk around this world with a big dark cloud over your head wherever you go. And we could call that cloud the wrath of God. It hasn't burst open yet on your head and killed you like with a huge lightning bolt. It may send drops of rain of condemnation and judgment on you because the Bible says the wrath of God is already revealed, but they're just little drops. But there's a day of wrath coming when Christ comes. And if you haven't trusted in him, you will be destroyed by the wrath of God. And it says, as we've been hearing from the book of Genesis, if you're not a believer, you're a child of the devil. Jesus said in John 8, 44, your father is the devil. 
to the unbelieving Jews, even though they were Jews, God's covenant people. If they weren't believers in him, they were the children of the devil. You see the same thing in 1 John. And, and it tells us in the Bible that if you're not a believer in Christ, you are in bondage to sin. Right in Romans 6, we see that. It says, for he who has died, and that means died to sin because he's believed in Christ, he who has died has been freed from sin. In other words, every one of us who's a Christian has been freed from sin. But what that means is before we were freed from sin through faith in Christ, we were the slaves of sin. That's the Bible's teaching. And that's the Bible's teaching about you tonight if you are not a Christian. You're a slave of sin. You have the same thing uh, in verse 9, the last part of the verse. A Christian, for a Christian, we can say this. Death no longer has dominion over him. It did once, but it doesn't any longer. And as we saw in chapter 8, verse 7, a moment ago, that an unbeliever is not subject to God's law, doesn't obey it, he can't do it. That's bondage to sin. True bondage. And you can say, as I say this tonight, you can say to me, well, you can call it the Bible's perspective or you can call it what Christians believe. And that might be how you look at it. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's one way to look at it. But what I'm saying to you tonight is this. What the Bible says and what Christians believe is the truth. Because the Bible is the word of God. And then one other thing that's true about you, if you are in that complex, living still in that realm of sin and condemnation and death, the Bible says you are in bondage to fear of death. Let's look at Hebrews 2. In verse 15, this will be the last passage we look at tonight and then we'll be done. Hebrews 2, verse 15. It says that Jesus, I'm summarizing the, the lead into this verse. Jesus came into this world to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, if you're an unbeliever, you may disagree with everything I'm saying right now and everything I've said up to this point. You may not like what I'm saying right now if you're an unbeliever. You may sneer at statements like that. You may laugh at people like me who say things like that and think things like that. And you might especially say, well, you know, I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of dying. And maybe you're not. I believe at some level you are. You're just not conscious of it. I believe that most unbelievers are spending their life trying to drown out the voice of conscience and to quell that fear. I think that's basically the way unbelievers in this world are occupied. But everything I've said is true. In fact, if you read enough history and biography, 
And I'm thinking especially regarding the most famous deniers of these truths that I'm preaching about tonight. You will find a lot of proof or demonstration that what I'm saying is true. A lot of people who have rejected everything the Bible teaches out of hand have lived lives of pathetic debauchery. A lot of them have. And with many of them, it led to torment during their life. And with others of them, it led to great torment at the time of their death. And with all of them, it led to far worse torment after their death. It's not a blessing if you don't experience that kind of torment now. Would to God that you would feel it. Because you might ask, what can I do about this? And that's the, go the goal of the gospel. To get you to ask, what can I do? And to realize there is something you can do. Let me just read that verse again, along with the previous verse. Because that points you in the direction you need to know. You need to know that there is a way out of all of this bondage and condemnation and sin and death. It says in Hebrews 2.14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That is, the Son of God became man, a real man, so that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Christ came into this world, in other words, to die in the place of sinners, to take the wrath of God upon himself so that every sinner in this world would not have to take it upon himself, but that those who believe in Jesus would never suffer the wrath of God poured out on them. And the one way that you will not suffer that is if you confess your sins to God and embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior because He's the only one who can save you. And this here in Hebrews 2.14 is the only way you can be delivered from your sins, released from the fear of death and the bondage of sin and death forever. That's the way out. So though this text is talking to believers because we love you unbelievers here in this place. This is what we want you to know. And we want you to believe that there is a way out of sin and condemnation and death. And may God, by his grace, deliver you through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would take this word and write it on all of our hearts, especially that you would help unbelievers here tonight to understand not only their miserable condition, but also their grievous and dangerous and frightful plight that they are in. Have mercy upon them, open their eyes by the work of your Holy Spirit, and bring them to repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ, your Son, even this night.
before they put their heads on their pillows. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.